Section 11 of Captain Cook by Walter Besant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 7. A Breathing Space. Cook returned home on June 12, 1771. In his absence, a day or two before he sailed out of Plymouth, a child had been born to him, but it died in infancy. He also learned that his second child, Elizabeth, born in 1766, was dead. Footnote. No one who gets acquainted with the family life of the last century can avoid remarking the great number of children who died. Thus Cook lost four, at least, of his brothers and sisters in childhood. He also lost three out of six of his own children. Yet his brothers lived in the healthiest part of England, and his children in the open country a mile from Aldgate. His own constitution was of iron, and his wife lived to be more than ninety, so that there was no hereditary weakness. End footnote. His wife was living at Mile End Old Town, a name given both to the few scattered houses along that part of the Mile End Road, where is now the People's Palace, and to the houses on the east side, the old side of Stepney Green. The house now pointed out as Cook's is number 88 Myland Road, a small and rather mean house at present, one of a row of shops. The more respectable residents of the Myland Road were retired masters of merchant vessels, or the grass widows of skippers still in active work. It would seem, however, as if there was little leisure for anything but business. He had first to put in order and to deliver to the Admiralty all his notes, journals, log-books, and observations, with drawings and charts. This done, he might have sat down to rest a while. Perhaps he did. But his power of taking rest was less than that usually granted to man. At all events, he found time to write a paper for the Royal Society called An Account of the Flowing of the Tides in the South Sea, as observed on board His Majesty's Bark the Endeavour. This paper, as well as one on the scientific results of the voyage, was published by the Society in their Philosophical Transactions. Cook was promoted to the rank of commander. He hoped, it is said, to have been made a post-captain, but this was not allowed. To us it seems a very small thing whether Cook should rank as a commander or as a post-captain. The greatness of a man's achievement is not to be measured by his promotion, or even by the recognition of his own contemporaries, though in general a man's own contemporaries generally overestimate the achievements of their leaders, as boys at school think the greatest man in the world is the captain of their eleven. Besides, there is in every age a fashion in the conferring of rank and promotion. In these days we have seen the greatest traveller of the age rewarded after he had reached the age of sixty with a simple knighthood, we have also seen, and it greatly increases our admiration for the national honours, the owners of great incomes created peers. In those days they reserved their peerages first for the men who defeated the French by sea or land, next for the younger sons of noblemen who distinguished themselves as statesmen, and lastly for lawyers. The immeasurable importance of the gifts which Cook had bestowed upon his country was such as to require the prophetic gift, the supreme wisdom, to recognize it. 
and surely there was little of that wisdom in the statesman of 1770. He had given to his country, Australia and New Zealand, nothing less. He had given to Great Britain, Greater Britain. If people had only suspected or guessed a thousandth part of what was to come out of this voyage, what reward would have been thought too great? Cook got no title, and I am quite certain expected none. He humbly hoped to be made a post-captain, and he had been contented with a single step. Let us hope that he was satisfied. The man is silent. We cannot tell what he hoped, or whether he was satisfied with what he got. There is only one document of his extant in which he is allowed to say the word he intended, and in that document he says nothing about his hopes or his ambitions. He was at home this time for exactly a year, but if the beginning of his leave was spent in preparing papers for the Admiralty, the end of it was fully occupied in preparing for another voyage to the same regions. It was a great thing in those days to have put a girdle round the earth, and it was such a painful and laborious thing, so full of discomforts and anxieties, that there were few who cared to attempt the feat a second time. Meantime the smouldering controversy about the great southern continent began again to rage vehemently. In 1770 appeared the first volume of Dalrymple's collection of voyages which started the dispute afresh. The recent voyage of Captain Cook had not, it was true, succeeded in finding that continent. On the other hand, he had not looked for it. His discoveries in respect to New Holland and New Zealand did not, in the least, disprove its existence. They only shifted the ground where it might lie. The believers in the continent were not in the least degree disposed to surrender their terra australis incognita because Cook had not found it such a beautiful land round which had been woven so many pleasing speculations was not lightly to be abandoned for two hundred years the southern continent had been believed in it will be found laid down with much precision on many of the old maps wherever bits of land capes corners and angles nay even islands were discovered they were set down on the map as part of the great southern continent Tosman, for instance, thought that the corner of New Zealand discovered by himself belonged to it. Lozier Bouvet, sent out by the French East India Company in 1738, reported land in latitude 54 degrees south and longitude 11 degrees east. This land, it has never been found by any subsequent traveller, was also concluded to be part of the continent. And early in 1675, an English merchant, Anthony La Roche, being carried out of his course by winds and currents, fell in with a coast now supposed to have been the island of Georgia, which was also concluded to be the southern continent. The discoveries of Quiros again pointed the same way. Given the existence of such a continent, and all these discoveries could be easily connected with it. In fact, they were, and every additional spot of land observed from a ship driven southwards by bad weather became an addition to the coast of the continent. Dr. Kippis, Cook's biographer, writing in the year 1788, thus speaks of this belief. The writer of this narrative fully remembers how much his imagination was captivated in the more early part of his life with the hypothesis of a southern continent. 
he has often dwelt upon it with rapture and been highly delighted with the authors who contended for its existence and displayed the mighty consequences which would result from its being discovered though his knowledge was infinitely exceeded by that of some able men who had paid a particular attention to the subject he did not come behind them in the sanguineness of his hopes and expectations in short the southern continent was the thing which had grown up in men's minds until to many who thought and wrote about it the great unknown land stretched round the whole of the antarctic pole it contained treasures greater than any which had been found in the americas it was populated by a race highly civilized who had acquired a knowledge of the arts it would be a possession for that european nation which should find and claim it greater and richer than was ever the spanish dominions in the west its longitude see dalrymple's collection is as much as that of all europe asia minor and to the caspian sea in persia with all the islands of the mediterranean and ocean which are in its limits embraced including england and ireland that unknown part is a quarter of the whole globe and so capacious that it may contain in it double the kingdoms and provinces of all those your majesty is at present lord of and that without adjoining to turks or moors or others of the nations which are accustomed to disquiet and disturb their neighbours dalrymple himself an ardent advocate of the southern continent thus dedicates his historical collection of voyages to the man who emulous of magellan and the heroes of former times undeterred by difficulties and unseduced by pleasure shall persist through every obstacle and not by chance but by virtue and good conduct succeed in establishing an intercourse with a southern continent the earl of sandwich at that time the first lord of the admiralty took a great interest in these questions it seems to have been chiefly due to him that an expedition was resolved upon which should endeavour to clear up and finally settle the controversy concerning the continent how far cook himself was consulted does not appear in cook's own words soon after my return in the endeavour it was resolved to equip two ships to complete the discovery of the southern hemisphere that he was consulted as to the conduct and equipment of the voyage is evident from his introduction to the second voyage in which he discusses the passage has already been quoted the kind of vessel most useful for such a voyage and shows that his advice was acted upon it does not appear that there was ever any hesitation on the part of lord sandwich as to the proper person to command the new expedition i know not where captain wallace was at this time or captain carteret but both were passed over and the command was offered to cook he accepted it without hesitation the date of his commission was november twenty eighth seventeen seventy one the interval of five months was therefore all the time he had to bestow upon his family and this interval as we have seen must have been pretty well occupied with business relating to the last voyage from the time of his appointment he must have been fully occupied with the preparations and the equipment of his ships so that the family at mile and old town saw but little of their father as in the case of the former voyage a child was born a few days after the departure of the ships and as before the child died in infancy the disasters of the previous voyage caused cook to take many new precautions against scurvy 
he put on board wheat instead of oatmeal sugar instead of so much oil and a quantity of malt sauerkraut salted cabbage portable broth salop rob of lemons mustard marmalade of carrots and inspissated juice of wort and beer some of these things were experimental and failed to produce any good effect others were well known for their antiscorbutic properties in fact for the first time in the history of navigation a carefully prepared attempt was to be made in the prevention of this disease when all was ready the ship sailed from deptford on april ninth seventeen seventy two but being detained by east winds got no further than woolwich where she lay for a fortnight she then dropped down to longreach but had to put in for repairs at sheerness on june twenty second she sailed for plymouth and finally quitted plymouth sound on july thirteenth end of section eleven